Hello, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yannick. It's a festive season, my calendar tells me. It is not a festive mood, though, is it? But it is, uh, it is prim. Not, not the yeah. best of times to celebrate Purim. Hasn't been for two years, but definitely not this year. Well, this is what's funny about it, because for two years, there was a reason why I could tell you, look, Purim is not really happening. Although, as I've said before, it definitely carried on happening among my Haredi neighbours around here in uh, N16, London. But this time, I thought, okay, this will be the first Purim that's like a real Purim, because everyone will emerge from covid and it'll be back to something like normal. And of course, because of Ukraine, it's just not kind of the mood, uh, I feel. I mean, I don't know. I, it would be interesting if maybe I should talk, ask this question of some of my neighbours. But I, I'm not sure, you know, it's dampened their mood much. Um, but it may, you know, maybe because obviously there are, like, you know, big connections between the Haredi world and Ukraine. So maybe, uh, I don't know. What about in, in Israel, where obviously Purim is a much bigger deal in every Purim is like a huge deal here. Uh, obviously, like the office Purim parties are like the equivalent of the Christmas party uh, where you are. And, and you know, obviously for two years, not really uh, um, a big deal. But this year, as always, Purim is this, and I talked about this last year, extended into these eight days of costumes, right? You have kids, yeah. you have the official costume day, and then you have all kinds of extensions to that, like the prince's day and the hat day and the animal day and the uh, drive your, oh. your parents insane day, et cetera, et cetera, and obviously <laughs> never coordinated. So you always have to remember I have this list of what kid does what theme. Um, but I do have On to... Day. Is this the eight days leading to Purim it's or is just, it eight no, days after? The, the four days before and four days after, basically, right? It's, oh, it's, my <laughs> word. So For a parent, it's this a is big, horrendous. It's a big deal. Um, and I, I was thinking about this because it really is this year. No one's in a good mood, right? I mean, there's a war in Europe. No one is in a good mood. There were like gray days here. Everything was sort of uh, depressing weather and, and a depressing mood. And then there was this moment that I kind of wanted to share with you. I was walking with my... Um, my daughter, who's three and a half, and we were walking with her kindergarten in a little sort of Purim procession through the neighborhood. And you see these little kids holding hands with their costumes, you know, the di small dinosaur and the little policeman and uh, the little girl dressed as Elsa. I wonder whose kid she was, you know, and from Frozen <laughs> and, you know, all that kind of, and then suddenly this mood changes in the neighborhood as if someone was holding like fairy dust and these little kids and everyone's looking at them and they're smiling and you get that moment of Purim of being somewhere else and being someone else for a moment with your little you know ill-fitted polyester made costume but you can be in that happy moment and your happy bubble for just a minute if anyone I think needs to understand or needs to know how to have experience in celebrating when the world around them is burning uh, it's us. No, I mean, it's okay to for I love a minute. That. I think that's a very, it's a very lovely thought. And it just underlines a tiny bit that contrast between where you are and where I am. Because of course, Purim is a national event where you are to the point where there's a procession in the street. And I can, by the way, imagine how lovely that would be <laughs> enchanting to see little children in procession like that. Here, mainly, it's obviously nationally a complete non-event. No one knows what it is. In my little neighborhood, of course, it is a little event. My first contact point, my first touch point with Purim this year was a late night walk with Freddie, our puppy, who I, I think listeners may be aware of Freddie, but the Freddie and I were going for our little walk and he encountered for the first time absolutely 
pounding kind of rave music <laughs> coming on the back of a flatbed truck which was driving around the neighborhood loaded with these giant you know um, head high speakers pounding out really kind of quite hardcore dance music sounded to me which i which was from our ultra orthodox friends who are getting into party mode <laughs> and freddie was absolutely freaked out by it he was completely you know up because this is the only day in the year when that kind of music is intrudes into this neighborhood and who knew that you know these otherwise very um demure and quiet down sort of demure pious uh, folk and neighbors uh, can really kind of can get it on when <laughs> purim comes around so purim, freddie was a little bit freaked out but yes it was a little brush with purim i'm not saying it had quite the charm and sparkle <laughs> that you've described but uh, but yeah this is one part of the world in a way it's all part of continuing and carrying on and life uh, you know has to keep going so uh, purim is a reminder of that perhaps yes a little bit a little bit but the rest of the world is still uh it's still crazy. And, you know, I think of this uh, book that I love that you probably haven't read just because you don't like fantasy or that kind of style. But uh, Terry Pratchett, the great Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman wrote a book together once, two Englishmen, uh, who wrote a book called Good Omens. And there was this fallen angel who wrote back to uh, to hell, like, guys, whatever you're doing, tormenting human beings, forget it, because whatever they do to themselves is always worse. And I kind of think of that uh, yeah. these days, it really is, um, maybe it's the fact that we're being impatient and we're kind of asking ourselves, okay, when does this end and how does this end and how, you know, we talked about this a lot with Anne Applebaum last week, like the, the choice between two pretty horrible decisions. One is maybe risking an all out war with Russia and then a nuclear war. And the other one is what, letting him get away with it. Like, how do we, how do we end this? Yeah, no, I think that's right. The, the there is this terrible sort of Hobson's choice at the moment between yeah, allowing him to keep uh, bombing uh, and terrorizing the people of Ukraine, and on the other hand, risking a nuclear confrontation. Neither of option is at all appear, appealing. And you saw it with that moment this week when Volodymyr Zelensky addressed Congress via video link. And, you know, the audience, of course, leapt to their feet and standing ovation, but they're very divided. Some of them think you've got to do more and others think mm -hmm. we can keep applauding, but we can't act because if we do, we risk nuclear apocalypse, you know, and they don't can't face that. But I think you're right about ending also raises a kind of hideous moral predicament because, of course, on one level, and I'm following, you know, I think as we all are, we're following hour by hour the news and hoping there is some word from these talks which have surprised people i think by being by continuing by being apparently serious uh you know they're, they're, i don't think they're just in or not entirely for show there's obviously part of it that's for show and on one part of you is thinking yes let there be a truce and then another part of me and this is a very um in a way unexpected thought thinks well actually if there was a truce which froze everything in place and said Putin's still there. He still gets to keep Crimea and those regions in the Donbass. Is that, a, you know, is that a, a terrible kind of compromise, which means he lives to fight another day and lives to invade another day, you know, either has another go at getting the rest of Ukraine, this time gets his act together, reforms the military and then makes it, a, you know, fighting fit, or even goes for somewhere else, Moldova or the Baltics or whatever. There is that idea which haunts me a bit, you know, that line, I think I put it to Anne Applebaum, comes from the chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov, you know, dictators like this only stop when they're stopped. And if Putin is allowed to 
anything other than total defeat, well, then that worries me because then Putinism is still a force in the world. And, you know, our lesson from the Second World War and everybody is constantly invoking lessons from that. But in the end, it did require Germany's total and utter defeat before you could begin to Nazism's total and utter mm -hmm. defeat, maybe is a better way of putting it before you could, you know, move on. Yeah. And, and, and again, it does beg the question, do you, does it need to look like a defeat? Is it a defeat without appearing to be a defeat? You know, how do you, firstly, how do you walk him down off a ledge of a very bad idea, right? I mean, firstly, let's stop this and then see uh, what happens. You mentioned the, the deal that everyone is talking about. We haven't seen, obviously, to this boat moment, what we're really discussing. We assume that it is something like uh, uh, Russia backs down and, and Ukraine uh, renounces its ambitions, its NATO ambitions. What I have to point out, of course, is that at least uh, according to the Financial Times report, right, Naftali Bennett is being the mediator, is the person in the middle of this, and they say that uh, he's in primary international uh, mediator. I don't know if this is true, but it is really interesting, Jonathan, because we've been talking so many weeks here about this sort of what is becoming morally an untenable position Israel is trying to hold, right, as being on the one hand, right, we're stuck between the United States and our alliance with them and the fact that Russia is here on our border in Syria and we have to balance long-time security strategically and against an immediate diplomatic benefit. But what I would do, like my instinct would be, okay, if this is the situation, I just hide under the table and wait for this to be over. Naftali Bennett is doing the exact opposite. He is putting himself in the center of this and it's either... A huge success, which don't know what the odds of that is, right? That the whole world is standing ovation, giving him a standing ovation and saying, you succeeded in this. Both sides are very pleased. Uh, or on the other hand, a total failure, an abject failure. And then what happens? He gambled, this huge gamble. It's, it seems to me a really interesting example of if life gives you lemons, make lemonade, you know, which is Naftali Bennett's position, situation is that he has to maintain some kind of neutrality or stay on the fence for all the reasons you've explained mm -hmm. so well that Israel has this peculiar need not to provoke Russia too much, given that Russia's there in the backyard in Syria, but obviously the strategic relationship with America. So that's the those are the lemons. And make lemonade, which is, okay, if I have to be on the fence, let me pose as if that's a deliberate choice. Mm-hmm in order to remain a credible mediator. So if I have to be on the fence, let me be the umpire. You know, that's quite an interesting bit of, um, in a way, quite creative. I mean, he's saying, here's my situation. Let's make a virtue out of it. And yeah, who knows if something good will come out of it. Um, so we've, we have been talking about Israel's uh, stance. It does seem that the United States is, in any case, losing its patience. Right. And Israel uh, isn't officially joining the sanctions, although you do hear Yair Lapid, the foreign minister here, saying this week, Israel will not be a route to bypass sanctions. So let's hear before uh, everything else, we want to talk about sanctions and oligarchs, very relevant to where you are and to where I am. Uh, but let's hear Victoria Nuland. She's the undersecretary of state, uh, the U.S. undersecretary of state for political affairs, what she had to say to our correspondent, our U.S. correspondent, Una Labson. And this is pretty harsh in diplomatic jargon. Let's listen to that. We have to squeeze the regime. We have to deny it the income that it needs, squeeze the oligarchs around him. We squeeze its economy. Um, so in that context, we're asking as many countries as we can uh, to join us. We're asking that of Israel as well. Um, among other things, you don't want to become the last haven for dirty money um, that's fueling Putin's wars. So that's quite something, that warning from the Biden administration. 
which is the right moment to introduce our guest this week. Oliver Bulo is the author of not one but two celebrated books on the former Soviet Union, The Last Man in Russia and Let Our Fame Be Great. But really importantly for our purposes, his new book is called Butler to the World. It focuses on how Britain became the servant of tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals in Oliver Bulo's subtitle. But Oliver, we wanted to dip into your expertise uh, about whether the extent to which Israel is playing a kind of similar role in a way and several of these oligarchs that are in the crosshairs of these sanctions are either you know permanently in Israel or are now in Israel uh, famously Roman Abramovich owner of Chelsea Football Club who we've talked about on this podcast before but just tell us what what the sort of scale of the phenomenon is how many what kind who are they the oligarchs who are in Israel well I mean this is well known obviously a lot of um the Soviet Jewish population chose to leave, to go either to Israel or the United States or elsewhere. In fact, there's a, there's a rather celebrated Soviet joke about Andropov, the head of the KGB, reporting to Leonid Brezhnev that he had bad news that all 8 million of the Soviet Union's 4 million Jews <laughs> wanted to leave to go to Israel. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not difficult to imagine why people wanted to leave. Um, and because of the fact that, because of the anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, uh, many, you know, uh, talented, motivated, ambitious uh, Soviets of Jewish ethnicity were excluded from senior positions in the party and the government and so on. So when opportunities, opportunities opened up in the 1980s in, in the new cooperatives and then in the private sector, often uh, uh, Jewish people were among the first people to take them up, having been, you know, frustrated by their desire to advance in other ways. So there was a disproportionate number of, of ethnic Jews among the early group of oligarchs, uh, among whom, of course, Roman Abramovich is, is one of the most well-known, but not the only one. I mean, we can look at, at, at other famous oligarchs like Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, or, or so on, who, and often, you know, after it became possible, they, they you know, forged links with Israel, which, you know, for, for natural reasons, became a haven for them. Now, it is, I can understand why the United States government is currently scolding Israel for, for you know, providing, as it were, a loophole in this increasingly global sanctions regime. But it does seem a little bit short-sighted because Israel has played a, a role as a haven, both for good and bad, for, for wealthy and non-wealthy Jews originally from the Soviet Union ever since um, 1991, in fact, going back even further. You know, the interesting thing, you're talking about Israel becoming a haven. Obviously, the law of return that allows for them to become, some of them to become Israel citizens is not what this was intended for originally. But there's also a law in Israel called the Arnon Milchin Law, or dubbed the Arnon Milchin Law, that gives um, these very rich people the tax exemption for them to come and, and, and live in Israel, and also that they don't have to report back, which also gives that kind of a, a loophole. And I think Israel is also a haven because it's a small country, and if you want to make a big splash, and sometimes these oligarchs do, then it's you can spend a relative small amount, and you could buy a newspaper or buy a television channel, and you have a huge effect. That also probably speaks to them. Yeah, but I mean... You know, I think at the moment we're all remembering that oligarchs are bad. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, but there are times in, you know, certainly in the last 20 years, in the time of 22 years since Putin took over, 
when you know we weren't feeling quite so negatively towards oligarchs you know look back in the in the very early days of Putin's reign in fact slightly before him you know, Vladimir Gusinsky for example um media magnate who i mean let's face it not pure as the driven snow because anyone who became wealthy in the 1990s was not but his television channel NTV played a, a crucial role as an independent source of information for um russian citizens looking to find information for example about the war in chechnya um he uh after this the bombings the apartment bombings uh in the in 1999 that sort of created the wave of hysteria that vladimir putin rode into the kremlin he he it was his channel who did a lot of work investigating whether these were in fact false flag attacks there's this very suspicious failed bombing in rozan we wouldn't know half of if not more than that of what we know about that had it not been for Kuczynski's NTV channel he uh, became very unpopular with the kremlin as a result uh, his channel was expropriated he left the country and he ended up in israel um where he was safe there's been many attempts to extradite him since but you know he's remained safe in israel the same happened with leonid nevslin um mm-hmm. again i don't think we'd argue that he pure as the driven snow but you know the the legal process that expropriated yukos the oil company which he owned a significant share of along with Mikhail Hodorkovsky and and others when that was expropriated in this farcical legal proceedings um which began in 2003 he was able to find a haven again in Israel from which which he has used as a base to launch um a, a legal proceeding of his own using um treaties that guarantee the rights of foreign investors and and is you know on the brink perhaps of a 50 billion dollar finding against the Russian Federation in exchange for having expropriated his property. So, you know, again, I mean, I I'm, I'm not necessarily defending uh, the way that Israel has been so um receptive and of of people like Abramovich and happy to take his money and so on. But this is for good and bad. You know, Haven it's Haven is mm-hmm. a tool. You can, you know, you can use it to hide in from goodies and you could hide in it from baddies. And 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 the the role if you look with a slightly longer x-axis, the role that Israel has played as a haven for wealthy Russians um who have you know fallen out with the Putin regime have been at least as at least as significant as it has for wealthy Russians who have you know not fallen out with the Putin regime do you can, can you imagine that uh, line of thinking being used by Israel to argue that actually it should be allowed and maybe will defy international sanctions do you think you they could be making the case look we've been a haven for opponents of the regime as much as we have for enablers of the regime could you see Israel holding out despite Victoria Newland's warning about being the last haven and actually defying those EU and US sanctions yeah i think to be honest i mean they could try i'm not sure it would wash much in washington i don't think washington much cares about what happened last you know last month or the month before they care about what's happening right now i mean of course you know to rather lost in 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 this discussion often is the role that ukraine also plays as a as a major center of 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 jewish emigration to to israel as a, as a you know obviously the the connections between um you know jewish communities in israel and ukraine are incredibly strong um you know odessa the most famous of all the jewish cities of the former soviet mm-hmm. union so you know that there are you know many ukrainian oligarchs um of of jewish heritage of whom uh, ihor kolomoisky is is the most well known but there are there are many who who have also with strong connections to to Israel as well. So it's a uh, you know it 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 cuts both ways to be honest. In fact it cuts in 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 how many directions you've got. The the mm-hmm. the role of of Israel as a haven for Jewish people is is you know obviously something which people from outside in in the rest of the world have have positive and negative feelings about and uh, 
and 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 they're only just more accentuated at the moment because of the horror of what's happening in Ukraine. I assume, by the way, that what's happening now is a freezing, a quiet freezing of assets, and definitely there are no big transactions going on between oligarchs' money into Israel. I mean, I, I assume, let's say I assume this plus. But by the way, you're talking. Oliver, a lot about the the good and the bad. And it's really interesting because we brought this letter uh, a few weeks ago of different organizations in Israel, Yad Vashem being one of them, that Roman Abramovitz gave or was supposed to give a very big donation to another huge hospital, the biggest hospital in Israel, writing the American ambassador here in Israel saying, you know, Roman Abramovich is a philanthropist, he's an Israeli citizen. We're very concerned because we're hearing that you might be uh, considering sanctions. So how much of this is let's say, of these oligarchs, how much of what they're doing, the good that they're doing, or is it really intentional good? Uh, it, it's a really interesting question and obviously a question that we have to confront in the UK as well because, you know, many of the oligarchs have, they're not just given money to, you know, real estate agents and football clubs, they've also put money into museums and art galleries and and, and so on, you know. And, and I'm not sure that, I mean, there's any way of, of really analyzing to what extent these people are giving this money out of the kindness of their hearts or merely because they wish to establish a reputation as a philanthropist to make them sort of legally untouchable or, or politically untouchable in the countries that they've moved into. But I mean, I think we can, if you look at the just the objective result of what this money means, it does give the oligarchs a protection elsewhere that they don't have in other countries. You know, there have been, it's, it's actually quite interesting, uh, how many oligarchs have sought extra citizenships, not just Israeli citizenship. Um, you know, uh, the uh, Finnish, Finnish citizenship, I think the Rosenbergs had Finnish citizenship. Mr. Abramovich himself recently gained Portuguese citizenship under a, a Sephardi right of return uh, law. Um, obviously, many of them have British citizenship or, or French or, or so on. So, you know, they do like to hedge their bets. And one of the really key ways of hedging your bets is to is to make a lot of friends. And let's face it, if you're rich, the best way to make a lot of friends is to give a bit of money around. You know, and, you know, it's a, it sounds like a lot of money to ordinary mortals, but, you know, for these people, it, it's, a, it's a pretty cheap insurance policy, particularly, as you say, that Israel has this very generous tax treatment for, you know, for, for uh, income that arises outside the country. This is slightly uh, at a, t- a small tangent, but it, I have to ask you about it because you know Russia so well and you know Vladimir Putin's mind, I think, quite well. He's, this speech he's given just in the last day or so, in which he talks about a fifth column and a necessary process of self-purification may be healthy for Russia. Quite a few Jewish commentators thought, oh dear, we know what that means when you start talking about fifth columns and purifying the Russian nation. That could be paranoid. He didn't. Putin certainly didn't mention anything about Jews in there. Uh, I just wonder what your ear hears when you hear... Vladimir Putin talking about purifying and uh, a fifth column of traitors. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be careful about assuming there's too much um, rational thought behind some of Mr. Putin's utterances. Um, you know, accusing uh, the Jewish president of Ukraine of being a Nazi is, is, is um, you know, unusual and bonkers. It's a reach. <laughs> it's, it's a reach, but it's, I mean, it's, it's bonkers, but it's not out of character. He does have a habit of throwing these, these things around. Um, you know, I, to my mind, one one thing that 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 one speech that that speech really reminded me of was one he made uh, in in two thousand actually uh, when he'd only been president for if I remember rightly four or five months after the submarine the Kursk sank, um, 
you know, a, a, a real disaster, one of the great flagships of the Russian Navy. Um, it, you know, it's huge incompetence in the rescue operation. Putin's response was fumbled from a PR perspective and an actual perspective was a disaster. Um, he lashed out at the oligarchs in exactly the same way with very similar language, talking about people whose, whose heart was elsewhere, you know, who were serving foreign interests. And yes, again, those oligarchs we were talking about, Boris Berezovsky and Vladimir Gusinsky, the media barons, both of them were Jewish. Um, so, you know, there is always, uh, if you look for it, an overtone of that kind of nastiness. And, and you know, that is deeply baked into, you know, Russian political rhetoric for, you know, well, certainly decades and possibly centuries. So, no, I don't think it's paranoia to hear that, you know, that dog whistle hiding. It's not even a dog whistle, right? It's, a, it's just a mm. whistle. Um, <laughs> you know, particularly wor- <laughs> words like, like um, national traitor, you know, which which are you know translated from German, right? These are not, you know, that's yeah. You know, this is this is very alarming. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, if I were if I were a Russian in Russia or, or any ethnicity in Russia, hearing that, I would be extremely concerned because that that goes in a very dark place indeed. And you know, I would like to think that, like in 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 the year two thousand, this is just him, you know, lashing out and throwing out, you know, these crazy epithets. But but considering how irrationally he's behaving at the moment, considering the fact that, you know, I, I mean, you say I know Putin's mind. I, I, he always surprises me on the downside, right? I didn't think he would invade Ukraine. Really, I it really didn't think he would. I didn't think he'd annex Crimea, even after the troops had gone in there. I didn't think he'd invade Georgia. Things like, you know, the the, the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in the UK or the assassination of uh, Kangashvili in, in Berlin. These insanely reckless acts, which just seem extraordinary mm-hmm. to me. So, you know, I'd like to say that, that, I wouldn't expect Putin to do anything, you know, worse than he's already done. But I always expect that and I'm always wrong. Oliver Bulow, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is called Butler to the World. And Oliver, really good to have you on. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's been my pleasure. And ours, thank you so much, Oliver. That was a very interesting conversation. The way that he, first of all, you know, it's always interesting when things are not exactly black and white. They're a little bit of gray. And, and for example, the Leonid Nevzlins of the world and the fact that he owns part of Haaretz newspaper, you know, and, and, and what he was talking about used to be a Putin supporter turned against him together with Khodorkovsky. So this is a complicated world, this world of, of, of Russian oligarchs and the Russian community in this country uh, at large. And I think just really interesting to hear that kind of nuance from someone who is, you know, outside Israel. He's not like the people who wrote that letter about um, Roman Abramovich who have a reason to sort of say, look, not all, not everything here is is bad. Uh, he's somebody who's been really holding the British government's feet to the fire over mm-hmm. these oligarchs. And yet he's saying, look, there are these nuances. Some of these people are dissenting figures and some of them are funding kind of good, even critical journalism and other work. So yeah, that was... To my mind, really interesting. He he began by reminding us about the Soviet Jewish immigration to Israel. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, we it's very easy for sort of people like us to just take that as read. It does inv- prompt an in- a question which has been in the back of my mind, actually. I've been meaning to ask you this, which is those people who are Russian Israelis, either born in the old Soviet Union or born in you know Russia or Ukraine, or um, or, or, the, or who have that heritage, you know, they're the children mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Russian or Soviet Jews. Where are they on this? I mean, you know, I, in, in terms of their 
I, I know we've we've talked before. I think about their media diet is often sort of Russian language media, often even actually Russian media. Is, is that group of people pro Putin, anti Putin? Is there the full range of opinions? What are, what are that? What are those Israelis saying? I think that's a really interesting question, and the answer to it might surprise you. Uh, they are, for the most part, uh, really anti Putin, like very pro Ukrainian, which is really interesting. The two main media outlets that the Russian-Israeli community have in this country is the newspaper called Vesti, it also has an internet site, and a television channel, Channel 9. They were both blocked in Russia this week because they are so sort of leaning towards uh, Ukraine and uh, anti-Putin. I talked to uh, a few, let's say, very uh, senior representatives of that community. What they say is, look, we left. When Yeltsin was in power, right, that's where the vast majority of Russian immigrants to Israel came. This was a very different Russia then. And to them, Putin is really someone who's taking Russia in a, you know, off the rails to a very different uh, direction. The interesting thing is some of them have children here, again, like their parents, sort of anti-Putin, very pro-Ukraine. Children who are, live there are something completely different. So, um, as always, kind of different shades. It's fascinating because... I just was reading something about uh, Russians in Australia who were having some huge pro-Putin demonstration. And the writer of the piece said, you know, uh, diaspora communities tend to be some of the most vocal pro-Putin ultra-nationalist Russians. Mm-hmm. And how interesting and in some ways makes very good sense, very natural, that, that where the exception to that rule might be uh, in Israel. So I, I want to, we're still on the topic of Russia, Ukraine, but I want to talk a little bit, Jonathan, about what has become really a heated debate in this country in the past uh, couple of weeks, and that is the acceptance, the issue of acceptance of refugees. Um, Obviously also a topic uh, in the UK, and it started when the, the, let's talk about the policy of the uh, Minister of Interior, Ayala Chiked, a policy, by the way, who has got, received almost no backing from her most important political partner, which is also coincidentally the Prime Minister of this country, Naftali Bennett. Now what she said basically is saying this, I will accept any Jew under the law of return, right? Because anyone who has a Jewish grandparent can become an Israeli citizen. It's not just coming in as an immigrant. It's coming in as and becoming a citizen automatically. But anyone else will have, we can uh, uh, let, allow in 5,000 people. Now that created a huge outrage in this country. A lot of people, including Avigdor Lieberman, Lieberman, who you wouldn't say is the, how shall we say, you know, uh, a symbol of civil liberties and, and et cetera, said, just let everyone in. Like anyone who wants to come in will come in and we'll sort this out later. Um, and Shaked's supporters are saying, look, this is a Jewish state. We should first and foremost, uh, take care of our own. Now, I have to say this really is kind of speaks to the core of this, of this country's question, right? I mean, what is, what does it mean when you say this is a Jewish state? Does it mean you have to bring in as many Jews as possible? Or does it mean that you have Jewish values and thus will open up your borders to anyone who needs it? Because you remember quite viscerally what happened when you were standing at the borders of the world and they were closed. And I think that because of that, that goes to the heart of the very question of our really existence, not to be too dramatic, it has become such a heated debate. It's such a profound question because Israel's so unusual in the world because it's a country created for a purpose. I mean, Britain just exists. You know, it's it's people say you know uh, his, make these funny questions of when was it founded? You know, and it's a joke if you say that because it just sort of emerged out of the mist. Um, Israel is so different because it exists for a purpose. 
And it goes to this, I think, what, what, exactly the profound question you said, which is, I think for a long time Israel has believed that it discharges its moral duties to the world when it brings in Jews. Um, that's fulfilling its purpose, to be a refuge and haven for Jews. But there is this other view, which, as you said, is that it actually has to have a kind of moral purpose beyond that, to be a kind of light unto the nations and a moral exempl morally exemplary state. I think, um, in a way, it comes down to a bigger, uh, an even bigger issue, um, which is one for the whole Jewish world, which is what do we mean when we say never again? Do we mean never again must Jews be persecuted in Nazi Germany by a strutting dictator in jackboots? Or do we mean never again must anything like this happen anywhere? Mm -hmm. And if it does, that's a the, the answer to that question is completely different. Yeah. And because Israel is where the kind of Jewish existential drama is played out, of course it's Israel where this question becomes practical and takes material form in the form of an interior minister who has to decide. But as I say, I think it's, there's a kind of bigger meta-philosophical mm. question that is one for Jews everywhere. What do we mean when we say never again? What do we mean when we talk about Jewish values yeah. or even the Jewish state? Is it Jewish in its character or is it just it happens yeah. to be a lot of Jewish people? In there? When we say never again, do we mean never again to us? <laughs> because right. Israel, Israel takes care of that, right? But is that what we mean? Like, isn't there something more to that? And I have to tell you that the Eretz Nederet, which is our, I mentioned them a lot. They're our, our Saturday Night Live, and they're really uh, wonderful. They had this skit that got a lot of attention this week, and they, they had the interior minister, Ayala Chaked, in the sort of standing at the border and saying, you know, you can enter, you can't, and then turning her into actually morphing, morphing into a, a, a mandate, a British mandate officer, saying, you can't enter Palestine, go back to Europe. That was really sort of poignant. And of course, a lot of people, let's say Shaked supporters didn't like it that much. But it, it does beg the question, how, how do we react? By the way, the policy changed, right? Now what they, because of this criticism, public outcry, Israel is letting in people who have any family connection in Israel, even if they are not Jewish in any way, and then saying the rest will let in uh, 5,000. I don't assume it will get to 5,000, by the way. But essentially the policy changed because of this our cry from the public and from the government. That is that is what happened uh, this week. I'm very glad you mentioned that skit um, on TV because it goes to something quite interesting about how things are remembered. Mm -hmm. Britain is associated in the Israeli memory and imagination with saying no to Jews in peril, to, to slamming the door in the face of Jewish refugees who needed safe harbour. In Britain, the self-image has no connection to the story you've just told. And it is, if anything, the opposite. And it's invoked all the time by people particularly who are very keen to uh, open the doors to Ukrainian refugees. They say, Britain has a noble tradition of uh, looking after refugees. Think of the kinder transport, the 9,000 or so Jewish children from Germany mainly, also Ch Czechoslovakia and Austria, who came in to Britain in around the time of Kristallnacht, 1938-1939. I mean, I heard it said again this week, and it sort of, it's an exaggeration to say it made me snap, but anyway, it pushed me onto Twitter uh, and to do a little thread where I said, look, you know, of course, for those 9,000 Jew Jewish children and their descendants, 
they will be forever grateful for the kinder transport program that saw them come into this country. But can we remind ourselves why it's called the kinder transport? Why was it only for children? It wasn't because the threat was only for children, against children. It was because Britain refused to let in adults. It slammed the door in the parents' face and the policy decision was, we don't want Jews here, really. It's going to drive up anti-Semitism, which is a funny way of saying it. Uh, and therefore, Jewish groups and their allies, Quakers and others, got together and thought, well, how can we come up with a proposal that will somehow be palatable to British public opinion? I know, children. So if we say it's children, people can't refuse that. Sure enough, politicians in Britain allowed that to happen. But the result was those heartbreaking scenes of children being and families being torn apart, parents handing over their children. I mention all that because all of this is about memory mm -hmm. and history and myth and the kind of stories we tell ourselves. And in this case, there is Israel where it sees Britain as the immigration official saying no. And Britain sees itself as the immigration official saying yes, welcome to all these children in need. It's all and you know, same set of facts, but understood completely differently, depending which country you're in. We have some awards to hand out, and we're going to start with the Mensch nomination, hotly fought, I have to say, this week, because a very bold bid by our Russian journalistic colleagues, the Russian television news presenter reporter, who turned protester holding up a sign saying, in English, no war, and then uh, in Russian, you know, they're telling you lies uh, and was uh, was forced into several days where she was missing. Her lawyers couldn't reach her. Apparently, there's reports on the BBC that a whole lot of other Russian journalists in state TV have been resigning on principle as well. This is, these are heroic things to do in a society like Russia. And I think, uh, you know, in normal times, I think that would be a slam dunk win for uh, Mensch of the week for showing that kind of courage uh, and bravery. But um, I think there is a, they are pipped at the post by Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, a British Iranian who has been in detention, you know, held hostage really in Iran for six, seven years, um, has finally been released and touched down on British soil uh, in the small hours of Thursday morning, uh, along with a, a fellow British citizen, Anusha Ashuri bringing to an end really what has been a painful, painful saga. But alongside the two freed um, uh, citizens after, you know, a six-year uh, ordeal, really the family of Nazanin and her husband, Richard Ratcliffe, who's been this just tireless campaigner uh, for her. And really, I think it's through, in part, his personal effort to keep her case in the headlines to keep politicians for, for focused on her. Uh, you know, they have a young child. He's been living without her all this time. Uh, somehow, I just think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very rare ray of light in what has been a really gloomy period. Uh, Mensch of the Week, Nazanin and her family, and really happy that they're back. Yes, and had to do something uh, related to modern-day Persia. Um, <laughs> on our Purim, yes. on our Purim conversation. Purim. Um, so very good. I agree with uh, both, and I would want to uh, give us uh, the Chutzpah Award nominee, uh, which, by the way, was your idea. But I will take it upon me to uh, talk. I agree with this completely. Our Chutzpah Award goes to someone who did the impossible. He united Jewish organizations 
all together um, <laughs> in uh, condemning remarks, which were at best not very well thought out. At worst, uh, I would say uh, patronizing and maybe even worse. We're talking about Paul O'Brien, the U.S. director of Amnesty International, who told an audience that he did not believe that the majority of U.S. Jews were pro-Israel and attached or very attached to the Jewish state. Instead, he said Jews wanted a place that would be quote, a safe Jewish space which would adhere to core Jewish values. Now, his basis for making this, um, shall I call it absurd statement, uh, was not anything empirical. He just said that his con comments were based on something his gut told him. I'll just sort of emphasize this again for a moment, Jonathan. He said that the, U the Jews shouldn't have statehood, but instead a safe place. Uh, and become a protected minority because that works very well in the Middle East and that works pretty well for Jews uh, during history. So, again, he's wrong and that's fine and, and you know, that's okay to be wrong. I just say that to say that the majority of American Jews agree with that because his guts tell him so, his arrogance, and I think a bit more than chutzpah. He then later said he was misreported. The Jewish Insider, which first reported this, published a transcript showing that indeed he had said exactly what they reported him to say. Just general rule, I think, in life, if uh, you're in a hole which you dug, stop, uh, just stop digging. That's what I had to say. Yeah, no, I think a good choice. Again, I agree with you. I think it's not really the substance. Those are legitimate views. You have, you know, people like Peter Beinart saying similar things, but it is a chutzpah to say that you, somebody who's not Jewish, knows what Jews really feel based on your gut. Uh, that's n never going to work out well. You know, you have to let people speak yeah. for themselves rather than hoping your innards <laughs> will do the talking for them. Um, so uh, I think that is uh, our award winner for this week. And we have um, awards, uh, our, all our award winners, uh, duly sealed. I think we want to tell people, if you are listening to this and uh, enjoying it. We would love it if you obviously become a regular subscriber, but also do give us a review or a rating. That really helps bring other people to the podcast. And we have some people to thank. We do. And we're going to thank Rom Atik, Lior Friedman, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music. I, Jonathan, have to get ready for a Purim party tonight. I'm going as an uptight and over-serious news anchorwoman. It's a costume I knew, <laughs> know very well. Um, and uh, we will... We will see each other next week. We will. I'm not going to say anything about that because, you know, I think that's too harsh. I think uh, if you go in that kind of fancy dress costume, people will hardly <laughs> recognize you. They'll say, where is your neat levy? Uh, good to be with you this time. Let's see each other next week. We will. <laughs>